Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awake or awakening people. There have been nearly 300 of them now. If you'd like to check out the archives, go to batgap.com, look under past interviews, and you'll see them categorized in about five different ways. We also rely on the support of people who appreciate the show in order to be able to put all the time and attention we do into it. And so if you feel like donating, there's a button on the right-hand side of the page. Um, so my guest this week is Joan Harrigan, and uh, her spiritual name is Shivarpita. And I'm really excited about this interview. I met Joan briefly about six, seven years ago before I even started this show, but I don't think she remembers me from then. But um, do you? She came to a meeting we had in Fairfield uh, that we had this weekly satsang thing going. And she um, has a center down in Tennessee called the Patanjali Kundalini Yoga Care Center. A lot of my friends have gone there, at least half a dozen, I, I think maybe seven or eight that I know of, and probably more. And we'll be explaining during the course of the interview what that center does and what Joan does. But I've been reading her books in preparation for this, as usual, and I'm, I'm just really impressed with the depth and breadth of her knowledge and her, the background through which she acquired that knowledge. And as I think you'll see in the course of this conversation, at least in my opinion, this knowledge would be really useful to the contemporary spiritual scene. There are so many people who have had awakenings and they're not quite sure how their awakening fits into the grand scheme of things, whether it's preliminary, whether it's final. Many times people feel their, their awakening is final, but then it turns out not to be. And I've often felt that there should be a, real, a much more systematic understanding of the, all the, the various possibilities and, and it would be very helpful to seekers and aspirants to have that understanding. It would safeguard and facilitate their path and I think that Joan's work really does provide that understanding if you take the time to study it. And it's not just an intellectual thing, she actually has a way of kind of helping, maybe this is the wrong wording, she can correct me, but of sort of diagnosing where a person is at and how their Kundalini rising might be stuck in, or diverted in certain ways and, and is able to provide specific uh, training or instruction to unstick it and get it going in the right direction. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But I think this should be really valuable for people and I'm, I'm really pleased to have her on. So, so thanks, Joan, for doing this. Thank you. Happy to. So let me just start by reading a bit about your bio and about the Patanjali Kundalini Yoga Care just to give you, and then we'll go into a little bit of your background. Um, so, Joan Shivarpita Harrigan, Shivarpita. Shivarpita, is the spiritual director of the Patanjali Kundalini Yoga Care Center, PKYC for short. She has practiced, studied, and taught Raja Yoga and Advaita Vedanta for more than 30 years. She has been tutored as the designated successor in America in the Kundalini Vidya lineage founded by, you say it, Joan. Gomatagiri. There you go. Maharaj. Maharaj, thank you. Learning the, or the oral commentary teachings of traditional Kundalini science from her spiritual mentor, and pl please say that too. Chandra Sheikh Haranan Saraswati. We okay. call him Swamiji. Good. Um, she is a retired psychologist. She has been a Brahmacharini, a novice in the Shankaracharya Vedic monastic order since 1987. She is the author of Kundalini Vidya, the Science of Spiritual Transformation, which I have right here and have begun to read. I was reading it on the plane last night. I just came back from seeing Amma in Boston for a couple of days. And also, 
a new book, Stories of Spiritual Transformation, The Fulfillment of Kundalini Process, which I've also read part of. I don't think, that book's not published yet, is it, Joan? No, I hope to have it out this fall. Yeah. Um, incidentally, I, apologies to those who had hoped to watch the live streaming of this interview. We just spent half an hour trying to fix it, and it's not working for some reason, and I'll just have to diagnose that during the week and get it working for the next one. But for general knowledge, um, most of these interviews are live streamed. There's usually anywhere between 40 and 80 people on live, and it's kind of nice because they send in questions during the interview relevant to the interview, and it helps to sort of enliven things. So if uh, keep that in mind for future interviews. The, the way to find the live streaming is to go to the future interviews page on batgap.com and you'll see a link on each, um, for each interview uh, that'll take you to the YouTube page where you'll see the live streaming at, this, at the scheduled time. Uh, as I mentioned, I feel like Joan has a, a really, she's dedicated her life to this thing and has a wealth of knowledge and it's almost like I feel like, <laughs> I don't know it sound too flattering and embarrass you, but there's this reservoir and I have to, to bring as large a pipe as possible up to the reservoir in order to extract as much water from it during, during this process. And so I really hope to do justice to uh, what Joan has to offer. And maybe we'll even do a second interview one of these days as well, because I'm sure we can't cover everything in you know, two hours. So, I think we should start with some basic questions. Uh, everyone's heard the word kundalini, but I think that there are probably a lot of different understandings of what exactly it is, and Joan has a very specific understanding and definition of it. So let's start by getting that. What, what is kundalini? What is kundalini shakti? Kundalini shakti is basically the divine presence within every human soul, and it motivates and guides our spiritual yearning and intention and makes it clearer to us what we need to do to cooperate with that spiritual source within us to get deeper and deeper to the source. And why is Kundalini Shakti often referred to as she? According to the Vedic scriptures, mm -hmm the Mother Divine is the source of the manifestation of all of creation as it unfolds, as it cascades forth from the One. Mm -hmm. So it is given a feminine principle, gender, to acknowledge that it is manifest even though Kundalini Shakti is the least manifest of all of the cascade of manifestation. So it's like the initial sprouting of manifestation. That's right. Yes, exactly. Okay. For those who aren't familiar with that concept, the idea is that the manifest universe arises by degrees. And in physics, it's sometimes called sequential spontaneous symmetry breaking, where, where oneness begins to diversify and then becomes more and more and more and more diversified and then we end up with you know just millions of different laws of nature and qualities and everything else but if you get right down near the source the diversification is very minimal it's just barely begun to you know mm -hmm. breaks into the four fundamental forces and then those multiply and so on and so forth so uh, there's an equivalent understanding of that in vedic tradition right exactly and it's depicted nicely in the sri yantra yes yes 
which has the interwoven triangles going up and down, set in a square with gates and circles and petals, and the rings of triangles get smaller and subtler until finally there is in the center a dot, a bindu, which is the one. Yeah. And Kundalini Shakti is anthropomorphically depicted as having her big toe on that point in the middle of the Sri Yantra. So the goddess is the personification of the geometric symbol of the entire universe, which Sri Yantra depicts. Hmm. That's interesting. I might actually have the video post-production guy put in a, a graphic of the Sri Yantra at this point in the interview. So people, see, people can see it. And I was just seeing that in your book last night, and I had never known that, so that's interesting. Um, but it's significant. Um, yes. One thing that fascinates me a lot, and I think about it all the time, is the fact that intelligence is ubiquitous. It's like anything you consider, you know, near, far, big, small, if you really think about what's going on, even in terms of what science has told us, is, is absolutely brimming with intelligence, packed with intelligence, as evidenced by the uh, amazing order uh, and, and perfection with which the complexity of life is administered. Um, and I kind of get the feeling from what, you've, what I've been reading of, of your work that in your tradition, this would be understood to be the province of the goddess or of Kundalini Shakti, which gives rise to the universe, whereas consciousness value, Shiva value, does it contain intelligence also, or is it just flat, unmanifest, and, and it's intelli the intelligence conducting the universe is attributed to the more the divine feminine quality? Well, the divine feminine is said to have the first describable attributes, the first tiny degrees of phenomenal qualities that can be described. Pure consciousness, however, is not nothing. It's not Emptiness. void, right. right? It is awareness. It is sometimes described as pure light. Mm. It is all-pervading, eternal, one without second. And it is the ground from which the manifestation cascades. But because it is beyond mind, beyond space and time, it cannot be actually described, it must be experienced. So as we go inward in the spiritual journey from the gross to the subtle, through the koshas, mm -hmm. as they are described, through the, the gross, the sheaths, mm -hmm. uh -huh, um, the veils or, or shades surrounding the light, the grossest is the physical, the material world. Then there is the pranic, the energetic or the life-giving force. Then there is mind, which would be lower mind, which would include the collection of all of our karmic material through many lifetimes, and the sensory motor mind manas, that the senses go out and take in data, and the ahankara, which identifies and takes ownership of beliefs and preferences. That's the um, ego, right? The eye maker? Yes, yeah. the eye maker, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the chitta is this vast storehouse. 
And well, that's what's the, the relationship between Ahankara and Chitta? You just mentioned them both. Uh, yeah, these three functions of mind are in the Manamaya Kosha. Uh -huh. So it's Chitta, the storehouse of vasanas, which are desires and drives, and samskaras, which are the impressions from all of our past experiences. These grooves get deeper and deeper through lifetimes, and we come in with a certain patterning. The ahankara. Before I forget the question, is uh, it seems like vasanas and samskaras must be very closely related. If vasanas are desires and drives, and samskaras are the impressions, the, the yes. impressions must very much guide and influence the drives or, or the yeah, vasanas, like, right? Drive, for example, would be hunger, and the samskara would be chocolate in particular. <laughs> right. Or if you had some addiction to food, then you must have heavy samskaras around uh, vasanas food. Vasanas around, around food. Yeah. Right. Okay. So vasanas desire samskara is the, the particular way that manifests. And all of that is our, basically our karmasias, our karmas. Uh -huh. And our subconscious is just filled to overflowing with this from so many lifetimes. Right. Ahankara identifies with that material and owns it. And the ego structure, the I-ness, the I-maker. And then Manas wants to go out through the senses to objects to fulfill what the chitta is stirred up about. And then and Ahankara just says, yes, that's who we are, that's what we need, that's what we do. And then, oh, I didn't finish the rest of the koshas. Then there is the higher mind, buddhi, which is responsible for discernment and being able to tell really what's real, what's unreal, what's helpful, what's not helpful, what's really going to bring us to spiritual fruition and what is illusion and in the way. Mm -hmm. And beyond even that is Anandamaya Kosha, which is the peacefulness beyond mind. That is the dwelling place of Kundalini Shakti as she is veiled by the subtle body, which is prana, lower mind, and higher mind, buddhi. Beyond the causal, where she dwells, veiled by the subtle, is the one, which is the source. It's interesting that bliss itself is regarded as a sheath or, or as something which can obscure the oneness. Exactly, and that's one of the spiritual materialism traps. Well, it's sort of like spiritual marketing also. People think, I just want to be happy mm. and I can get this high from transcending and meditating and it's lovely and it becomes an escape and it becomes an attachment if that's what one is after, just a pleasant mental experience or even a glimpse perhaps beyond mind that is sattvic, peaceful, but it's not gone far enough to really be the goal. So maybe not right now, but somewhere in the course of the interview we'll have to talk about how one can proceed through each of these sheaths and beyond each of these sheaths in order to get to the core and not get hung up at one stage or another thinking that one has finished. We'll talk about that. Still on the definition of Kundalini, there are a lot of theories or understandings out there mm -hmm. about what it is. You know, there are all kinds of people 
recommending all kinds of things to either enliven it or avoid it. And in the course of doing these interviews, I've done a number of them with people who were just going along minding their own business and ended up having a rather profound kundalini awakening and didn't even know what it was and started doing research on the internet and thinking initially they had some kind of disease. And then I know of cases where people ended up in, in hospitals. So, you know, because they went to a doctor and the doctor said, well, this is weird, here's some drugs. And mm. so, you know, Kundalini has a bit of a bad rep in some quarters as being some, something scary and dangerous because mm. some people have had difficulties. So maybe we should address that right now. I think there's four main ways currently of looking at Kundalini. The first would be the secular or psychological, which is more like what you just described. It, it might come from a, a medical model that Kundalini is a weird, horrible, capricious energy mm. that might attack you unexpectedly <laughs> anytime and wreak havoc in your life and render you uh, a strange kind of ill that people can't figure out. And it, it's very difficult to treat because, of course, it's not a physical malady. It's also not just a difficulty with the energy system. And usually when people have such a spiritual emergency, they just want it to go away. And it's if they haven't had any spiritual training, it's difficult for them to get the overview and the perspective and attitude that there is something holy and sacred at the core of this. And this dramatic experience is an intense invitation for me to learn how to cooperate with what is wanting to happen and to try to understand it and relax into it. And maybe there are some things that I need to change about my behavior, my attitude, the way I am in myself and my life that would enhance my experience rather than just fighting this discomfort. So in this spiritual emergency sort of model, sometimes people are told, stop all spiritual practices if you're doing any, don't meditate, eat a lot of meat, do everything external you can think of. You need to be grounded. Mm -hmm. And this may give some temporary relief of symptoms, but it doesn't address the source of this dramatic big message that the person is receiving. Right. And that is that it's time to change something very fundamental and significant and allow this living process to go the way it needs to go in its own wisdom. Mm -hmm. The second way Kundalini is looked at is from an esoteric viewpoint where people think, oh, there are siddhis to be had and there are occult techniques that can be applied to get some real magic going and I can improve my psychic ability and my healing powers and my intuition, of course, for the benefit of humanity is usually how it starts so that I can apply my esoteric gift more skillfully and enhance my repertoire of abilities. But that's a slippery slope and it can be ego aggrandizing and is not spiritual actually. It's, again, spiritual materialism. It's looking for 
the goodies instead of for the purpose. The next way people might look at Kundalini is if they have some yoga training. And then you'll get the standard sort of, at some point, some force will come up the spine, explode in the head, opening the chakras, energy centers in the central column along the way sequentially, and thus enlightenment can happen. This is a much simplified version of some of the ancient teachings that have been westernized and sort of co-opted into a, a psychological model, mainly, and also used for healing and so forth. And simplified in that, as you point out, there are a variety of routes that Kundalini can take. There are various cul-de-sacs that it can end up getting caught in. Mm -hmm. uh, there, are, there are all sorts of, it's, it's not as cut and dried as it's sometimes presented to be. Exactly. It, also, it can, you can have all kinds of stuff going on, you know, uh, that might seem like Kundalini awakening in your head, and it actually is not that. It's the Vayus doing something, and, and Kundalini may, may not have fully awakened any of the lower chakras. Or, this know. is the biggest misunderstanding around Kundalini. People say Kundalini energy. Mm -hmm. Kundalini is not energy. Energy, as we saw in the description of the koshas, is just the second sheath right there inside the material, physical, gross level material world. Kundalini Shakti is the very last, right at the edge of oneness. So to say that Kundalini is energy really makes it much more manifest and gross than it is. Than it actually is. It is the divine within. Yeah. It is, yes, the divine, <laughs> not the divine's energy. I'm laughing because there's so many questions I can ask you. I hardly know where to begin, but I'll just keep winging it and rolling along as we go. One question that you just reminded me of when you said that is that uh, you, you mentioned that Kundalini kind of guides people's spiritual progress, and that's interesting. I, I'd always felt guided, and I still do, and I, I feel like, you know, there's some intelligence that knows better than I do what I should, direction I should go in and stuff, and if I'm yes. sensitive to that and, and cooperative, then one thing leads to the next in a very nice way. I mean, even this show there was a lot of guidance around having it turn out the way it has so far. And I had intentions that, were, that would have taken it in a different direction, and, and those weren't being supported. And when I just sort of relaxed a little bit and went in other directions, then it was supported. But I've always kind of almost thought of that in a way of sort of some intelligence external to myself, like guardian angels or you know, some broader intelligence that mm -hmm. was orchestrating me like a puppet. Whereas, Spirit guides or yeah, something. something like that. Whereas you're, what you're saying is that that energy is very much within us. And of course the, you know. Presence, all, divine it, presence. Yeah. In, Not in, energy. Intelligence or presence, right. Mm -hmm. Kind of guiding us from within. So. Definitely. So when we have like deep and deep genuine intuitions, which are like subtle impulses of go this way, you know, go that way. Would you say that that's, that's Kundalini guiding us? Maybe? Usually, yeah, yeah, that's if we can get our eye maker out of the way yeah. and all of the desires and impressions from the storehouse of chitta mm -hmm. and the sensory temptations from the manas, if we can clear our way through that to 
a deeper source, then we're hearing the real promptings of the divine within who just wants us to come home yeah. to that source and not get confused and, and take little detours, big yeah. detours. So if Kundalini is, it almost sounds like each person has their own Kundalini Shakti that's coiled up at the in the root chakra that has to progress through their own system. And yet the divine we usually think of as universal and all-pervading and omnipresent. So are both true that the divine yes. presence is omnipresent? There's uh, the microcosm each, each, yeah. and the macrocosm. Right. As is the human mind, so is the cosmic mind. As is the human mm -hmm. body, so is the cosmic body and so on. When we speak of kundalini within the body, it, is it correct to say that it's like an individual expression for this person of that cosmic intelligence or cosmic presence. Yes, it's just like there's the Jivatman, which mm -hmm. is the individual, capital S, self, and then there is Brahman, and Atman is Brahman. Atman is Ultimately, essentially. the microcosm, and when the illusion of separation from the individual self leaves and merges one with the one, mm -hmm. there is only Brahman and that is all there is, then we realize that the individual is the universal. Likewise with Kundalini Shakti, the divine within, we each have that precious beloved at our core that is who we really are. And the divine, of course, is universal as well and all-pervading and eternal. Now, many people seem to jump ahead. They, they say, okay, well, the individual is cosmic, you know, Atman is Brahman, and uh, ultimately you are that oneness and therefore you really don't have an individuality and there is no person and there's some teachers who base their whole teaching on this saying over and over again that there is no person there's nobody doing anything and some of these teachers even conclude that there is no reincarnation because if there's no person how could there be reincarnation what what is it that would reincarnate i think it's kind of a conflation of levels myself how would you comment on that perspective well until you are actually self-realized and experience true non-duality. I, I don't mean oneness like I'd like to buy the world a Coke because we're all one big happy family. Yeah, but Mad I Men, mean, concluding the episode <laughs> of Mad Men if you watch that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so conceptual oneness is clearly just a theoretical and head thing and people can get it philosophically, but before having it experientially we are still in dualism which means we have to deal with mind we have to deal with the fact that we are embodied that the prana system needs to be vitalized for us to make good progress that we have to abide by certain laws of the universe and nature that will keep us healthy and help us focus the mind and the gunas the qualities of nature are at play so Thomas, dullness, darkness, and rajas, the activity, restlessness, and sattva, peacefulness, are all intermingled. And in the spiritual path, we are attempting to get beyond tamas, which just keeps us sluggish and ignorant, and use a little rajas to make us curious and find out things and do some spiritual practice. And finally, to really establish ourselves in a sattvic lifestyle and develop a sattvic mind through 
spiritual practices which start with things like in yoga, the yamas and the yamas, and in Vedanta, the four qualifications, so that we have a more sattvic mind. Then we can be peaceful enough to get through, again, the koshas from gross to subtle and have increasingly frequent and clear insights as to the pure nature of reality, not get distracted by the senses and mind, and settle into the awareness beyond mind. But until we have done that and start having actual glimpses of true oneness, I don't know how other than a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> or past uh, life karma fruit, fructifying or something. Suddenly, yeah, yes. That happens sometimes. Coming ripe, that one could actually progress through duality. I feel we need tools to progress through duality. And that's what the great spiritual traditions of the world provide. Yeah. Ways for us to not get distracted and lost, but to keep going inward, inward, inward to the actual source. And there are faux oneness experiences, like by the world of Coke, and highs that can happen. Just before we go on to that, remember that thought, just on the word progress. In some circles, progress is sort of a dirty word. There's this sort of debate between the direct path and the progressive path, and the, the direct people seem to be saying, you know, you already are that, and you know, why, why mess around with years and years and years of practices and progress because you are that, just sort of... Well, absolutely, you know. they're absolutely right, mm -hmm. and if you can do that... More power to you. Absolutely. <laughs> but if you're just sitting in your living room waiting for whatever day it is that your karmic number comes up and enlightenment arrives, what do you do in the meantime? Well, unfortunately, what a lot of people do is they read a lot of books and, they, and these books convince them that they are that. And, and they often mistake that understanding for actual realization. Mm -hmm. It's a discernment. It's a discernment. Mm -hmm. And it might be a bypass. And there are philosophical bypasses, there are uh, psychological, mental, emotional bypasses. One can have an experience. It may be enthralling, it may be uplifting, inspiring, it may be a gift of grace, it may be a glimpse, but it may not be the actual true goal. It's a discernment. Yeah. I've met many people who, you know, have had glimpses. Um, some know that they're glimpses, and they, they oh, I have this wonderful experience, and now it seems to, you know, I, I didn't expect it to last, and it didn't. And other people who have, you know, awakenings that are really significant, they, they think that, wow, this is it. And then maybe two years down the road, they lose it again. And, uh, you know, what happened? How did I lose it? Why did I lose it? Well, there can be reasons that one would have an actual some kind of experience and lose it if they didn't follow through and support and keep supporting what the divine inner guide is directing them to do. Yeah. If they get into rajasic and tamasic activities and thoughts and they're not unloading the subconscious, mm -hmm. really letting it go, not just watching it, but really that it's leaving, then the nice experience that they had 
may not last because it gets gunked up with the old karmas falling in and filling up this beautiful opening that they yes. have because they're not supporting it with sattvic, spiritual, virtuous living. Yeah. Now, I have another question I want to ask you right now, but I interrupted you a few minutes ago when you were about to say something. I said, hold that thought. Do you want to get that in before we go on? Yes. I was going to say, around the misunderstanding of Kundalini Shakti, most of the people that we've worked with came in this lifetime with already having had a Kundalini initial release in some previous lifetime. So they come in with Kundalini process. They're not waiting for that big initial release, they have it already how many centuries ago? We don't know. How many lifetimes ago? We don't know. How did it happen? We don't really know. But it's active within them. And at some point in their life, it might ripen due to some karmic moment or a, a, a blessed uh, stimulation, the the proximity of a saint or a holy place or reading scripture that will inspire them. Or, on the other hand, it could be some very difficult thing in their life, a loss or something painful that punctuates the moment where they become aware of this process that has already been percolating. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's released, it's capable, but it's just not big enough for them to really say, you know what, there's something powerful happening in my life now yeah. from within. These types of people who have come into this life with Kundalini already awakened to some degree, is there something about their lives as children growing up that is different than other people who don't have any Kundalini awakening? Are, are they yeah. remarkable in some way? They are some more remarkable than others because there's so many different kinds of kundalini process. Mm. But in reviewing scripture and uh, with our own case studies, which is about 300 people who've told their stories by way of getting an assessment of their kundalini process, people with um, kundalini process tend to be much more aware of the workings of their minds and of their energy system. The, so they feel prana flow. They feel currents and surges and tingles and pinpricks. They feel heat. They feel activity in the brain area. They feel pressure, perhaps. They are more aware of their inner life. They may be more imaginative, more creative, more intelligent than the average bear. <laughs> they are sometimes more dissatisfied. They may be frustrated and seeking and have a yearning for something. They may not know what it is even, the truth, a teacher, a better kind of wine, but they want, they want, they want. They are not satisfied. And sometimes they think it's something in the world that they want or true love. Well, everybody wants something. I mean, everybody in Absolutely. the world is looking for fulfillment, right? But that doesn't mean everybody's had a kundalini. This way. is a deeper level and it is more subtle and fundamental. Yeah. It's not just, I want money or I want pleasure. 
it's more, more like a sense of I don't really belong here. You know, I'm I'm a stranger. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I mean, exactly. I don't I don't fit in that kind of thing. That to a person, yeah. people with Kundalini process will say, from childhood, I didn't fit in. Right. I was strange in some way. Mm -hmm. People didn't understand me. I felt like a misfit. Mm -hmm. And some people actually have special talents sure. as little children, mm -hmm. not just artistic talents. Or you can also have a talent for management mm -hmm. or organization, less frills kinds of talents rather than tap dancing you can just file things in a very orderly way can we generalize to say that gifted people are likely to have had or come in with a kundalini awakening and somebody like mozart is probably you know quite kundalini enlivened i would say most mozart yes but not everyone with special skills has kundalini process because these special talents and abilities and powers come from brain center activation. They are the petals of Sahasrara, mm -hmm. the thousand petaled lotus. And when these are opened or activated, there may be a special ability that comes forth. But these can be harvested without any kundalini process through occult formulas, methods. There are ways to just get the gifts without involving spirituality. So it's very tricky when people think, oh my God, this person has so many siddhis and they know what I'm thinking and they predict the future and, and there's a charisma and a power about them. It might just be brain center activation. So their With kundalini could very well be just sitting down there in the root chakra even? If, they're, if they are like a wizard rather than a saint, hmm. they could have wizardly ways and just activate the powers. You can also have wizardly ways and kundalini process that is not sufficiently Mature, elevated. Yeah. And actual saints and sages <laughs> also have power. So it takes a lot of discernment. Yeah. So powers are not enough to judge is this person enlightened or realized or a spiritual teacher some spiritual teachers manifest hardly any siddhis but they are there they are present yeah. they are in truth in reality you can feel it yeah yeah yeah, yeah i can feel it it's um, not flashy it's deep and many of them could be displaying siddhis if but they they care not to they sometimes. Don't, they don't flaunt it. They just don't want exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. If God says do it, then it'll happen. Because yeah. at that level, Ahankara's not making the decisions. The ego, the owner, is gone. They're a feather on the breath of God, as Hildegard of Bingen says. Mm. And they just go in the way of Brahman. Okay, so many things you keep saying that just stimulate questions, and there's so many things to ask you. So one thing that came to mind, two things here, but one at first, is that you know you said a person could have kundalini awakening in process over lifetimes. So obviously it's not something that's necessarily going to come to fruition over you know five years of practice or something. It could be lifetime after lifetime that it's steadily progressing, right? Yes, or one can stay at the same level for many lifetimes, simply because they can't find the way to make true spiritual progress or they are too tempted by Rajas and Thomas to get overly active with mind and senses and distracted 
and use the benefits of their rising to make their life better rather than using it for spiritual advancement. Yeah. Can Kundalini regress? Like you get it up there to the are, heart chakra in one lifetime and next thing you know, <coughs> you lose that and it goes back down again or something? There are certain kinds of risings that fluctuate. Hmm. So it's not that they actually regress, but they do go up and down right. within a particular naughty or subtle energy channel, uh -huh. tube. And then there are other ones which, once they reach a certain stage, could not they go back down? They don't go down again. They're like through Sushumna to throat chakra, mm -hmm. will stay at throat chakra and not go down. Mm -hmm. It will go up. I see. That's a stable rising. Or stay in throat. Or brow. Go, stay there or go up, but it's not going to go down. It's not going to go down again. Right. Okay. I know I first started, started having Kundalini symptoms in about 1970 after a one-month meditation course, and I, I knew what they were, so it was okay. It didn't freak mm -hmm. me out. I mean, there was, you know, spontaneous movements like that and weird grimacing in my face yes. some, sometimes. And I thought, okay, well, this is cool. Something good is happening because <laughs> you know? I sort of had that training already. But I, I would by no means consider my process complete. I'm sure it isn't. So, you know, it's been, what, 45 years and it's still an ongoing thing. And, and you're, you're talking about also, you can have real interesting things. Like I, sometimes I have this experience that I feel like there's a, a chick pecking its way out of an egg in my third eye center area. I hope she succeeds. <laughs> it feels like it. It feels like there's little chick, you know, and sometimes showers of bliss down the scalp uh -huh. and all this stuff. But um, it's, it's a work in progress. I mean, so I'm just saying this, not to talk about my own experiences, which aren't actually that significant compared to most of the people I interview, but just to indicate that this can be a lifetime process and you have to be patient and tolerant. Yes, and there are ways to accelerate the process as well. And that's what Kundalini Vidya specializes in. Mm -hmm. It's not just a theoretical frame that describes stages of spiritual development, although that certainly is there and ways to determine where someone is on that continuum. But there are also methods relevant for an individual based on who they are, what their karmic bag is like, and what kind of kundalini process, what kind of rising yeah. they have. So if just about anybody, let's say, who was listening to this interview and felt motivated to do so were to come to your center in Tennessee, which we'll talk more about later, do you have sort of a, an approach which kind of diagnoses them in a way and determines pretty accurately where they're at in terms of their Kundalini awakening insofar as it has progressed? And then after having determined that, you're able to uh, prescribe specific practices or techniques or something to mm -hmm. keep it going in, in the right direction? Yeah, that's our specialty. Mm -hmm. We request that applicants write their three histories, which is their personal history, their health history, and their spiritual history, mm -hmm. based on an outline of items that I made. And so they tell their story. And from contemplating that information that the person shares in their own words and sort of being with that person in that way, reading between the lines and awareness of what's going on with them on the level of their kundalini process 
becomes clear. Mm. And in that way, we give an assessment. So you're saying um, that to a certain extent, the assessment um, is a result of not only your knowledge background, but your cognitive or intuitive ability. That well, that Swamiji, yeah, told me early on, uh -huh. Mom, if you use your mind, it will never work. <laughs> yeah. So it's a go beyond mind right. to know way of knowing yeah. that is used both to understand what kind of process a person has and to determine which practices will be the right match for them mm -hmm. at that point in their development. I also have wonderful training from Swamiji, so it's not just, it's, it's not like a psychic reading, it's beyond mind. Is he still alive? It, he is. Is he in India or Tennessee? He's in India. He lives in Rishikesh. Mm -hmm. He's 85 years old now. He has retired mainly from working in America, mm -hmm. but he still does some work in India with Europeans. That's how he simplified his life yeah. at this point. A little bit later, we'll talk about some of these pra practices specifically, if we may, and, and give people kind of idea of what you would prescribe to them. Uh, but I want to just keep going through other things first. But also, as we go along, if there's anything in particular that you really feel like talking about, don't wait for my questions. Just sort of bring it in and we'll, we'll talk about it. But there's something you said about 10 minutes ago that I wanted to comment on, which is that I used to notice, I, I've seen a lot of this happen to a lot of other people, that when I was on long meditation courses or something for six weeks, six months, it's very delicate in a way. And even when I used to teach TM and, and you know, you'd have 25 people in a day that you'd be teaching 12 hours all day long, one by one. By the end of that, there'd be such a kind of an intensity that, or back to these long meditation courses, there'd be kind of an intensity would build up and you had to be very careful uh, lest your, your senses just run amok. Like you felt like going into town having a pizza in the middle of a long meditation course. Or, the ricochet kind of. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of like the more the deeper you got, the, in a way, the, you had to be more disciplined and more careful. Otherwise, the, the sort of the energy built up. And, and, and there were, I had one experience where I had to leave one of those courses abruptly in the middle of quite long meditation practice. And it took me months and months to get balanced and integrated again. Mm -hmm. I, I felt sort of like that Star Trek thing where they get beamed up and it didn't quite work properly and they're not totally beamed, you know. <laughs> uh -huh. so, I mean, you Molecules are missing. Yeah, something like that. There was a sort of a disconnection thing going on. And I, I don't know what it was you said earlier that reminded me of this, but something about the, the necessity, I know what it was, the necessity of sort of a disciplined life and healthy lifestyle yes. and, and spirit, spiritual lifestyle and all if a kundalini process is in progress and yes. you can't just do any anything you feel like doing. No, and sometimes interventions that might seem to the mind or senses as intriguing or fascinating or wow that's really powerful i'm going to jump into that yeah. might be too much for a person's system hmm. at a given time so we have to be very discerning and really tune in deep 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 and not get enthralled with some of the interesting things that are available but to truly just follow that quiet inner voice of the holy spirit who only wants spiritual development and even so the vehicle must be prepared the prana vitality must be developed and maintained 
and the mind must be trained to not be dull or restless or fluctuate between the two, but really to be one-pointed, mm. to be able to concentrate on one thing, and that can eventually flow into a meditative state. So to do that, we have to work very consciously to create a sattvic environment in our gross material setting, in our work and family and interpersonal life, in our emotional life, in our entertainments and habits. So spiritual life is one choice after another. Do I want this exciting or pleasurable whatever, or do I want to go clearer, more still, more inward to the source? To be a true, sincere spiritual seeker is not an easy thing. No. And Americans, perhaps, in particular, are accustomed to, they want quick, so they may be more attracted to modalities that promise a quicker kind of thing that doesn't require a whole lot of effort. But even if you get a somewhat quick, some kind of result, to maintain it, all the great spiritual traditions say that you have to have a container and develop your vessel so that it is strong and clear and capable Basically, it, it, is, it is the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And if the tabernacle is tattered, difficulties happen. Yeah, can't pour, pour new wine into old wineskins. There you go. Yeah. I think this is an important point. We should dwell on this for a few more minutes because it's, I don't think it's quite emphasized enough in, in spiritual circles. Um, you know, there's not a lot of um, awareness of the notion that you know, the, the body and the, the nervous system are an instrument through which realization is, is attained and that you have to take care of the instrument. I mean, that was something I kind of, I mean, I haven't always been stellar in that regard, but when I, when I was 18 and still doing drugs, I had this realization one night. I was sitting on my bed, you know, on LSD trip, and I thought, you know what? I am stuck in this body, and if I damage it, I'm going to be stuck in the damaged body. Uh, yes. And so I said, that's it. I'm going to stop taking drugs and learn to meditate and <laughs> kind of clean up my act. And That's divine guidance. Mm. You had a knowing. This is teaching me something about an altered way of looking at reality. But ultimately, I feel it's probably not truly good for me in the long run yeah. uh, and for my spiritual life. Speaking of drugs, what do you think about LSD, ayahuasca, all the rage these days? People are all flying down to Peru to take ayahuasca trips. Have, uh, have you dealt with people who have done that? And, oh, yeah. Uh, have, have you seen any positive outcomes, or, or, or is it mixed results sometimes? or is I, It depends on the individual. Yeah. I have seen some positive outcomes in that, well, they say with LSD, your head doesn't come down in the same place. You're right. And you have a true experience of a totally different way of perceiving yep. what you thought was real. And you understand, like cultural relativity, you understand states of consciousness relativity. Yeah. And there are lots of different ways of being in reality. 
So that lasts. You don't forget and that. That's a paradigm buster. Yeah. You can't remain a gross materialist, a gross analytical rationalist, having had that direct experience. Right. You know there's more going on than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. However, this glimpse is risky. Yeah. Some people don't make it past their first trip. They, yeah. Or, or they, they, they are delicately poised, and mm -hmm. particularly because some people do it, and particularly because uh, people with defected risings, as we call them, which are the unstable risings, are more at risk than others. And young people don't know, do I, am I at risk for a psychotic break or do I have a deflected rising and this might whack out my subtle system more than it would my friends. Yeah. There are just all kinds of possible negative results. Plus, many of the uh, sacred medicines, no matter how carefully purified and yeah. careful a setting and all of that, there still may be toxins that build up in Agna or in the brain centers, mm -hmm. and they'll have to be cleared out later. Yeah. And some also affect the, the solar center, so there are consequences. Yeah, and I'm, I'd say the same of, I mean, I've, I've sort of been in thinking that they should legalize marijuana because it's crazy that all these people are getting thrown in jail and penalized and all for something that everybody's just going to try to do anyway. But I wonder what the social ramifications of that will be in the long term. Well, we're running that experiment. Yeah, we are. We'll find we? out. <laughs> we'll find out. They that. haven't sufficiently studied these sacred herbs. Yeah. But the yogis in India, some of them, of course, use bong, which is Ayurvedically prepared to be pure. Even so, when Swamiji was a young man, and some of his fellow young Swamis said, oh, you'll get a deeper meditation, and an elder called him over and said, son, no, no. Even well-prepared bong still leaves residue in agna, yeah. and your brain gets accustomed to using that to get beyond. And you don't want any crutches. Uh, you want to be able to do it autonomously on your own. Yeah, and some of those sadhus are just stoners that you know sit around and collect alms and smoke dope all day. So yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. not necessarily that all, happens too. Yeah. It's funny, here in Fairfield, Johns Hopkins, you know, is, is putting quarter page ads in the local paper looking for long-term meditators who would like to participate in, in experiments uh, using psilocybin. Uh, I wonder if anybody's responding to the ads, but, you know, I, I do know of cases of people who have been meditating a long time and then think, what the heck, I'm going to try some drug or something, and, and um, end up probably regretting it. You know, it, it doesn't go so well. You know, I prefer to err on the conservative side, yeah. and why risk it? Well, they're, I mean, they're tempted because you hear these stories of, you know, all kinds of breakthroughs and progress and resolutions, and some people, they've been doing a spiritual practice for a long time, they think, I'm kind of stuck, I'm not getting anywhere anymore, maybe I should try this. Yeah. Roll the dice. So, what you would say then is, with your approach, and this, this can actually segue us into something a little different here, with, with your approach, you know, it's a safety-first approach, and... And sattvic, gentle, spiritual practices. Yeah. Not the exciting, intense practices. 
Yeah, speaking of intense practices, I know again of people who have sort of started to do a lot of intense pranayama or something, hoping to, and have gotten into trouble. Too much may be too much. Yeah. Gentle, sattvic, and a good match for the person's system. Yeah. Well, we've actually sort of covered the stuff that I was going to just segue into, which is that, you know, Kundalini sometimes has a bad reputation because so many, so many people have so much difficulty with it. The thing is, the word has become redefined in the modern West. The original spiritual meaning, the fourth mm -hmm. meaning of Kundalini, which is that it is the divine within and that it's a whole spiritual process is not understood. And the spiritual emergency, the dire examples of wild kundalini experience are basically, they've come to define the whole. They're just a tiny part of the whole continuum of kundalini experiences. But someone says, oh, that's kundalini. You automatically sort of think according to the way the word is used now that it means a really troublesome and, and maybe dangerous and maybe debilitating experience. That is not at all the traditional definition of kundalini. So I always capitalize the word kundalini to indicate that it is the name of God, that it is divine, that it is sacred and holy, and that it is not a mere wild energy. Right. When I'm using kundalini in the standard secular way that it is used, I use a lowercase k just to show the difference. And I think you would say, wouldn't you, that in many cases, you know, the progress of kundalini can be very undramatic, almost unnoticeable. Absolutely. You know, there's a spiritual progress taking place, even varying profound degrees of awakening, but mm -hmm. there's not a lot of fireworks. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the healthier examples and the people who are really trying to create a, a sattvic, virtuous, healthy, spiritually focused way of living and thinking and being, mm. their processes generally are easier. And the kind of processes that would be termed a kundalini, a spiritual emergency or a kundalini crisis that needs treatment to subdue it and just make it go away, those kinds of much more dramatic manifestations, often people in those circumstances are so frightened yeah. and so debilitated by this big experience, they may not even have a spiritual urge. Right. One person told me, I didn't do anything spiritual to make this happen. I certainly don't intend to do anything spiritual to make it go away. Just fix it. <laughs> there was nothing I could do for her. Because you needed to give her something spiritual to make it, yeah. The only solution is a spiritual solution. Right. And if the person isn't willing to embrace a spiritual orientation, spiritual perspective, spiritual practices, and really make changes, if someone isn't willing to change, progress in spiritual life is not possible. One has to admit, there are improvements I can make. I'm blocking myself here, I'm distracting myself there. So in our work, we specialize in sincere, dedicated spiritual seekers who are willing to do the work, willing to do 
regular spiritual practice, willing to follow the yamas and the yamas, the values and virtues mm -hmm. that all the great spiritual traditions have in, in some word or another, yeah. and to open to the workings of the divine and allow it to happen and get their preferences out of the way and get their lower interpretations out of the way, get their ego structure out of the way and let it unfold and to do what it takes to keep the prana vital. And that means don't overwork, eat good food, take rest when you need it, do your dharma, but do it in a way that you know really fulfills your life calling and destiny and you know family responsibilities but doesn't exhaust you because if your prana vitality is depleted you cannot make spiritual progress mm. likewise if your mind is scattered and attached and full of desires you can't keep it one-pointed and focused and you won't make spiritual progress. These are prerequisites and they are required. And sometimes we get calls from people who are just in this wild moment of a very difficult kundalini process. And yes, it is kundalini process, but no, our service doesn't address that kind of experience. We're not an ER for kundalini emergencies. Uh. We're not a hotline for people to just call up and tell their score stories, which are frightening them and confusing them. Well, let's say someone who's having a frightening, wild experience, mm -hmm. you're not gonna solve it for them over the phone, but no. could, could you say to them, well, come on down and spend a week with us and we'll be able to kind of get you more on the right track? You know, it depends on the person and often when they're in that intense and dramatic a time, they're not ready for what we have to offer. But they boy, you're to going to be able to deal with them a lot better than the local ER, that's for sure. We're not really designed to deal with urgent emergencies. Okay. And there is a lot a person in such a circumstance can do on their own. Mm -hmm. And I list some of those things in, in the back of Kundalini Vidya. Just, very simple things like find the right, good, nutritious, balanced diet that your particular system needs. Rest, pray, find a spiritual orientation that makes sense to you. Relax into the process, reframe it. Know that this is a sacred unfolding and that it's not of the devil. You are not being attacked. <laughs> right and it's not going to destroy you. But until the prana system is more vitalized, they would not be ready for what, and until they're really motivated by spiritual yearning rather than urgent symptom removal, they won't be ready for what PKYC does. We're for serious spiritual seekers. There is, by the way, uh, still, I believe, a spiritual emergence network hotline yeah, that. Yeah. that can refer people to counselors and practitioners mm -hmm. that might be able to help them with some of the symptom removal. It may not necessarily address improving their kundalini process, but it may be able to ameliorate some of the intensity of some of the symptoms. 
good to know. But really the main thing is accept that this is a spiritual process and be practical in taking care of yourself as you would a tiny baby to make the best of what is happening. I know some people, spiritual teachers, whom I respect a lot and consider quite advanced and who are clear as a bell and who still eat meat. Do you... The Dalai Lama is a carnivorous atheist. Oh, okay. I, and yeah. he's fabulous. Yeah, there you go. So, so mean, you wouldn't Tibetan correlate... Buddhists yeah. eat meat and they believe in no self. Yeah. So, you know... <laughs> so you can't draw a correlation no. there at all. Jesus ate fish. Yeah, Buddha you know, died from eating man. rancid pork. Okay, because you had been mentioning pure diet and all that stuff, so I was wondering if you were... I, I said correct diet for one's constitution. Yeah, yeah. If your DNA strain has been Northern European forever, there's probably never been a successful vegetarian... In your lineage. In yeah. your lineage. Right. That's an interesting point. And, and so attempting to make an abrupt dietary change to vegetarianism or something... I mean, I know plenty of vegetarians who don't look terribly healthy and are having all kinds of problems. And mm -hmm. Well, actually, that leads us into another thing, which is that I think I, mentioned, I saw in your book someplace that a lot of diseases like fibromyalgia and other things might, or even maybe, I don't know about epilepsy, if you meant migraines, and a lot of things might actually be related in some way to kundalini issues. You know, an unstable kundalini process or one that is intensely stuck strains the entire subtle body system. And when the subtle body system is strained and the vayus, which are the pranas, are flowing in a way that is just... Disrupted and... Trying to get the kundalini process unstuck mm -hmm. and pushing and urging and, you know, sort of banging on the walls, mm -hmm. the whole system is out of balance and strained and the prana system is the basis for the physical system as light turns into waves and waves turn into particles it manifests on the gross so if something is really out of whack in the in the subtle level it can manifest on the physical mm. and also karmically you know there can be difficulties in a, in a kundalini process and karmically that person just has diagnoses on top of that. Do you think there's an optimum age for spiritual progress and you know kundalini, we can bring kundalini into the question and well, that, that just as there is with athletics for instance and that after a certain age your ability to progress is going to steadily diminish? Depends on the individual, again, and the karmic timing for the ripening of their yearning and their focus on spiritual life is what it's about for me, and that's it. Mm -hmm. That's my prime directive. The median age for people coming to us is 53. Mm -hmm. We got people in their 20s all the way through their 80s yeah. who have successfully progressed. But, you know, in people's 50s, once they've done their career thing, their kids are launched enough, there's a turning inward. Yeah. And Jung said, really, what's the point of working with someone for deep analytical work until they're 40? <laughs> anyway, they don't understand themselves well enough. They haven't had enough life experience to really be clear on their values and their purpose and, and who they are. So 
to go deeply into who am I. Some people are precocious and they get it very early on. Mm-hmm. Other people, they have to do this uh, second phase of life in the Vedic way and have their career and family and get established. Then they can look more inward to their spiritual needs. Yeah. And, you know, some people are precocious and they get it very early on and go out and become teachers and probably would be better off maturing for another decade or so before embarking on that responsibility. (laughs) You know, there's something to be said for a seclusion time, either definitely in a given day or for a certain period of time, because the inner work cannot be bypassed. The unloading of the subconscious, the emptying of the karmic bag, which only happens with this gentle tipping point, turning point, the sacred shift of getting to makra point, which is at the top of Sushumna Nadi in the upper Agna Chakra. When that sacred shift happens, it's like popping the cork Mm. on the chitta and the unconscious material can flow forth with a simultaneous establishment of objectivity and discernment and non-attachment so that you're not identifying with the material and it can flow forth. But this takes a lot of time for just even the first big clearing. Then when one gets into the actual stages of samadhi, Mm. which are still dualistic, the refined purification of the baseline, sort of the silt and algae at the bottom of the lake of mind. You've thrown out the tin cans and the old boots. Your personal history, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I got the slideshow of my life and the little snippets of boyhood. That's emptied out. But that silt at the bottom, which is characterological, pre-verbal, ancient in our how many lifetimes and so much who we have become that it's almost invisible to us it's like a fish being aware of water it's just what we live in it's our worldview it's our interpretive filter to empty that out oh my god (laughs) it's painful the ego fights against it and Ego is tricky, tricky, tricky. It doesn't want to be unplugged. It's like Hal in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Dave, stop, Dave. uh It seems so Don't do that, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) And it'll kill Dave. (laughs) It just wants to survive. But it knows the jig is up and that it will cease to be. It has to cease to be. And all of that stuff has to be emptied out for truly want to be able to be one with the one. There can't be anything in between. Hmm. The individual has to have the vitality and the one-pointedness and the non-attachment and the discernment to expand, expand, expand until finally it is one with the one. No separation. Hmm. And there is only one. That is all there is. Boy, you just opened up a gold mine of stuff we can talk about. I mean, that the whole thing you just went through in the last couple of minutes is... Amazing. Let's elaborate on it. You were actually going to say one more thing, but I'm just really thrilled with what you just said. I can 
imagine, knowing the types of kundalini processes that there are, that sometimes, very rarely, this merging the individual self with the universal self mm -hmm. can happen quickly. But even after that experience, the hard work of emptying out the contents of the chitta and the disengagement of the ahankara and the training of the manas, which is the senses and desires and so forth, that work still has to be done. So the whole spiritual bypass, which maybe Westerners are, they, they, if they want the faster way, they imagine they can just jump Leapfrog. over the <laughs> level of mind. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go straight, hop over chitta into buddhi and bask in the light of the one, but the chitta will bite you at some point and it will be attended to. It'll pull you down if you don't face it. Yeah, I think I think Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said that one time too, that you can it's possible to have some kind of awakening that's genuine, but if you really haven't cleaned up a lot of stuff then you're gonna have a lot to deal with in the in the I, he didn't say this, but that the shit can really hit the fan a lot faster than, and and more uncomfortably than it would have if you had been able to work more progressively through it before that that awakening. This is why the spiritual path, cross culturally, interspiritually, starts with an ethical code. Yeah. Starts with virtue. People go virtue, and they get all this yeah. old religion wound activated. Right. Yeah. And they think, you know, it's all good. And it's not all good. Some stuff is harmful to the subtle system. Yeah. Some stuff is distracting and depleting. So choices every minute, every day, there's choices. It makes a difference. Let's keep talking about that. But let's also, uh, you know, you talked about getting to the Makara point and then the levels above that. I wonder Makara, if Makara, actually, because Makara is the crocodile animal in the second chakra oh, that okay. will pull you under into desire water element okay got to get our pronunciation right yeah on that. that's that's makara okay makara, makara is the full moon experience of catching the gap between thoughts and having the first true glimpse of the of beyond mind mm. it's good he yeah um, it's funny because, you know, I, I feel that in, in a way, when I first learned to meditate, almost from, really, literally, from day one, I had such a glimpse. But then again, there have been decades of house cleaning necessary after that. So is it possible to have a glimpse right from the start like that? Yes. In fact, there are methods that sort of specialize in giving a glimpse of experience. Yeah. And it can be inspiring and motivating and... It's a sneak preview of, of yeah. more to come. Good way to put it. And so it keeps you practicing because you yeah. know, ah, this is true, this is real, this can happen again. And it does happen. I mean, in a way, those glimpses have been almost daily all, all these decades, but never with the degree of clarity that is possible, but always sort of like dive in, soak it up come out into activity, integrate it. And, and just there's this continual cycle and refinement and, and whatnot. So it's sort of like, in a way, the goal is all along the path. The goal is, as the Advaitins know, mm -hmm. ever present, yeah. because it's beyond time and space. Atman 
is here now, yes, and mind is in the way. Mm -hmm. So mind makes the duality. It is the maya factory, and it produces all of these veils and obstacles that keep us from realizing we already are one with the one. But if we are one with the one and don't have a direct experience of it, it's just theoretical. So we have to eliminate the veils, get through the koshas, particularly mind is the great barrier mm -hmm. reef. And that's why all of these recommendations around lifestyle and thought and the wonderful grace and blessing of glimpses of light or insights of truth keep us going, keep us motivated so that uh, we will want to continue on the spiritual path. If not even in a slump when we lose our self-confidence and we go, ah, what's the use of doing spiritual practice? Ah, sitting meditation, it's just, it's boring. <laughs> and it's just the same old stuff going by. And am I really making any progress? And well, I've got this, I got to get done and that I got to get done. And it's, we get convinced by lower mind, mm. you know, to do less practice, which is why at least continuing to think about primary purpose of life and to remember those wonderful moments of grace and truth, the glimpses of reality that we have been given. Actually make a list of them so that when in doubt, you can go, yes, I had that true glimpse experience. It's real, there's more. Or if there is, is a visage of a great holy one and you just look at the blessed face and you know the divine is shining through. The one is presently radiating from the core, the source of that vessel. That embodied being is living from the source. That's the more devotional way. That's beautiful. And, and they're a living example of what's possible. Indeed. Indeed. And even the ones who are no longer in the body, their photographs still convey this wonderfully. Anandamai Ma. Sure. And Ramana Maharshi. Uh, Ramana, yes. And, and Sri Ramakrishna. Mm -hmm. And even the death mask of St. John of the Cross. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. His face is just so pure. <laughs> Beautiful, Joan. Beautiful. <laughs> but you can get this from scripture also. It depends. I'm a feeling type who's trained to be a thinking type. No, it's sweet. There are people who are naturally thinking types. Mm -hmm. Vivekananda said that in the spiritual path, the heart of a thinking type is a feeling type, is a devotee. And the core of a bhakta, of a devotee, is a jnani, hmm. a thinking type. And they come together, as do all the pairs of opposites. Yeah. Uh, the synthesis occurs. So the Advaitin, who hopefully would be studying the Upanishads, because that's what jnanis do, is study scripture, meditate, contemplate, hear the truth, 
think about the truth, go inside and have experience of the truth. This too is a path that gives glimpses and insights and you follow like breadcrumbs these wonderful gifts of grace that come from truth until you get closer and closer to the source. Beautiful. And to perhaps summarize everything you've just been saying, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee. It's, it's a matter of where you put your attention, you know, and, mm -hmm. or, or, you know, seek and ye shall find, that, that phrase, that um, if you just keep your attention on this stuff and act accordingly. That's right. That also is a practice. Even if you can't get yourself to do actual practices, mm -hmm. if your heart is still yearning, if your mind is still trying to figure it out, yeah, that also is a practice. One thing that is, I've seen that a lot with people that it's sort of like when they have that yearning, the divine hears it and yes. answers the call. Yes, that which is being sought is that which is seeking. That which is seeking is that which is being sought. That's St. Augustine. Augustine. And there's some gurus who, who use the phrase, you know, take one step toward me and I'll take a thousand steps toward you. And I, th I think mm -hmm. that the same could be said of probably Kundalini Shakti or the divine intelligence itself, that if you have that intention sincerely, you, you will be supported and met along your way. Yes. Yeah. It is answered. Yeah, yeah. It is reciprocal. Right. So I think maybe the little lesson in what we're saying just now is it's not a, a dumb mechanistic universe. It's, it's a divine, intelligent universe, and you're not alone. And if you have the sincere desire for higher possibilities, then, you know, just enliven that to whatever extent you can. And, mm -hmm. and, and your efforts, which may even be effortless, but your, whatever you give to it will be rewarded. Maybe not immediately, but it will be, it will be rewarded. That's the thing. Patience, patience, patience is very important. And that's where we get weary. And we want bigger results, faster results, surer results. But it's, you know, one baby step at a time often for quite a while. And then there's a tipping point. And the thing is, you have to really tune into that inner discernment. Because if you're following a method that isn't the right match for you, mm. You can follow and follow and follow, and it's not going to yield what you're hoping for because yeah. it's not the right match. So just blind faith or, by God, this is what I picked and sticking with it. Sometimes jumping ship, if the ship is not going or not your style of ship, sometimes one has to jump ship because the rivers go into the ocean no matter what ship you're on. The ship has to match you. Or to use a similar metaphor, I mean, yesterday I flew from Hartford and one plane went from Hartford to, you know, well, I came from Marlboro and we drove to Hartford and then a plane took us to, took me to Chicago and another plane took me to Moline and then I drove home. So, you, you know, you have to somehow take the appropriate vehicle for each stage. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It <laughs> might work for this phase and not for this phase. Yeah. And sometimes people have guilt around that kind of thing because, well, this has been my teacher and I, I, I'd be disloyal if I changed teachers or anything. And, but I don't know, my attitude has been gratitude for every step of the way and, mm -hmm. and, some, and an openness to what is 
needed. Uh, That's at, right, at because it's it's the bigger picture. Yeah. It's about the individual soul merging with the universal soul, yeah. and that is independent of religion or teacher. It is spirit to spirit. Mm -hmm. I think maybe you know some for some people. It might be appropriate and, and fruitful for them to stay with one teacher all the way. And in other cases, it's like, it's like the education process where we have one teacher in our third grade, and another teacher in fourth grade, and then other teachers in college. You know, we kind of move along. Mm -hmm. There has to be a good reason. For switching. Yeah, you don't want to be switching. a dilettante. Exactly. Right. You want to go for the depth, not for the breadth at a certain point. Yeah. Get the overview, but then pick a path that you really resonate with, that you have studied, and your discernment says, this is a true path, this is a true teacher, if there is an actual teacher, and I really resonate and I can benefit, and I'm going for the depth with this one. Mm. Now, um, in your own case, I know you've devoted your life to this sort of thing. Um, you got married when you were young, your husband died, that was devastating, and, and that, but then you've you've kind of devoted your life to, and he was, he, he was a spiritual person also, and you, you guys were already doing yoga and stuff together, and then you've devoted your life to this sort of thing now for decades. In talking to you and reading your books, I feel like, you know, you're a good example of the value of dedicating one's life to spiritual development. If you I don't, hope to be. Oh yeah, well that's, that's a beautiful, humble thing to say. Now, you know, a lot of times people don't like to talk about their level of spiritual development. Other people are very open about it. And you have a vast body of knowledge here. To what extent do you feel like you have progressed as a result of all this in terms of stages of awakening relative to what stages are possible? I'm not done yet. Is I can it, tell is, you that. Is anybody? I, I think mean, so. Rarely. I think it's rare. Rare. But yes. Like the Indian fellow that you mentioned, would he be considered done? Your teacher from Swamiji? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I believe he is. Yes. And, and Anandamai Ma. Sure. There are great saints and sages from all around the world, all different eras, who are realized. Their autobiographical writings convey it. It comes off the page as yeah. a living presence still. I have been very fortunate to have had some very good spiritual education. I was brought up in religious family. I got 12 years of Catholic schooling. <laughs> so, um, and I had good nuns and priests, no problems. Mm. I was very fortunate in that. And we were taught theology and critical thinking and how to be with scripture in a way that it comes forth and the importance of virtue and the examination of conscience to be self-aware of what am I doing that's helping my spiritual life, what's off the mark. Then it all fell apart, shockingly to me, on senior retreat. It just sort of collapsed and didn't make sense. It was really difficult. My whole culture was Catholic and everybody I knew was Catholic and I just, it didn't make sense to me anymore. So it was the end of the 60s also synchronistically. So I did a lot of exploring of what is the world if it's not coming through this 
little subculture that's all I've ever known. So I examined the secular world. Fortunately, that didn't last all that long. Shortly out of college, I found a really good yoga class with a spiritual orientation using gentle asana, teaching the yamas and yamas, gentle pranayama, and basic mantra meditation. It was in the Shivananda lineage. Mm -hmm. And I practiced that and realized there was a philosophy behind it. So I studied the Yoga Sutras. I started studying Vedanta. So that by the time I met Swamiji in 1986, when synchronistically I finally got a free trip to India, somebody needed a meditation teacher on a tour. And so I got this wonderful three-week tour all around India and landed in Rishikesh and stayed behind to do my own practice. And uh, Swamiji was coming and going to teach some Sanskrit. And uh, I felt very stuck in my process. And he was clearly no ordinary Swami. And I finally asked him for help. And he gave me particular practices, explained them to me, and my process just started to unfold really beautifully. A wonderful shift opened for me. So I came back to America and... Uh, wonderful get... shift. Can you just elaborate on what the wonderful shift was? <laughs> well, in Kundalini Vidya, it's called Makara Point. I reached Makara through Sushumna. Mm -hmm. I already had a rising through Sushumna Nadi. There are six Shakti Nadis. Three are very rare. Mainly the three that Shakti can enter are Vajra, Saraswati, and Sushumna. Vajra and Saraswati are unstable and called deflected. And these are pathways from the base chakra to the top, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And I came in with a rising through Sushumna Nadi to the heart level. Came into what, this life? Came into this lifetime. I see. Yes, with a heart chakra rising through Sushumna Nadi, mm -hmm. which is what any good organized religion should be able to give a person, mm. a rising through Sushumna to heart chakra. So lots of church ladies have heart chakra risings. Mm. But one needs more than the standard religious practices to get beyond that. So I'd practiced Raj Yoga for 10 years by the time I met Swamiji and I had meditated and studied the philosophies. But the particular practices that he gave me hit my subtle system in a different way so that the, the values were quickly trained to do something different than they did with just the standard two dozen asanas and half dozen pranayams. You better define values quickly. Oh, values are the ways the prana operates. Each chakra has a, a value particular to it and an element particular to it. So the values generally stay in their own location at the chakra that is their seat. But in spiritual practices, they are trained to combine and elevate so that they leave the area in which they normally function for purposes of keeping life functions operating. 
digestion and respiration and so forth because they animate the corpus. So for spiritual improvement, the values have to be trained through spiritual technology, spiritual practices to do something different than they would ordinarily do. And this is to be done gently, not in a big, fast, hard, dramatic way. That would be a rajasic intervention. Spiritual interventions should be sattvic. So not to say they can't feel intense, but they're gently intense. So these practices I could feel, I already had symptoms, signs of a kundalini process. There was a lot of heat generating from the chest upward. My heart would flutter and hop and spin. I actually went to a cardiologist complaining of a spinning heart, the look he gave me. <laughs> so we did the sonogram and he concluded I had a heart like a horse and hearts don't spin. I go, but it feels spinning because the vayus, the pranavayu was spinning in the heart chakra. And that's what I was feeling because people with risings can feel the movement of the vayus, of the pranas. So I knew there was something happening. When I started doing these practices, I had one night of intense kriyas and I just was basically rolling in different ways all over the floor. It was a sort of a, a shaking out. Hardly sounds gentle, but it was quite natural and comfortable actually. It just felt like a good stretch like you might do when you, when you wake up. The pranayamas became automatic so that there was spontaneous retention, there was spontaneous, very gentle bastrika like that. I get that a lot when I meditate. So. It's a purification mm. and a vitalization. Because I had process st stuck at heart chakra, it felt when I did one particular practice like there was a stiletto in my heart. Mm. It was very painful, but I knew it was in the energy system because as soon as I stopped that particular practice, the pain went away. And every time I did it, it came back. So I knew it was getting, working on an obstacle. So anyway, I, I had tremendous grace and blessing and help. So one night Swamiji sent me to meditate and there was an opening and a vision and I just went up into white light that was illuminating and I was gone and then at some point I came back. So my Makara experience was more definite than many. I think partly because I had farther to go and partly because Swamiji was there and his great master was there and initiated me at the same time. On the subtle level? Or something. On the celestial level. Celestial level. So my particular story is a different one because Swamiji then started teaching me Kundalini Vidya and then later started coming to America once my process developed enough that he could teach me more. Mm. I had to have the experience before he would fill in more about the theory so it wouldn't sort of be like a self-fulfilling idea. 
So once I described the experience to me, then he would take me to the scripture and show me. And then later when he started coming to America, uh, like eight years later, and people started coming for our service, I would learn from each individual more and more about Kundalini Vidya because I could see the case study. I knew their histories. I saw them get to Makara. I heard their experiences that they had post Makara. And then as years went by and we were in regular contact uh, with ongoing consultations for spiritual direction, they came back for more retreats and we started providing more spiritual education. I could see the trajectory and I could see the difficulties people got themselves into and I could see how practices yielded different things with different people. And Swamiji all the while was explaining this to me. Fantastic education. A fabulous education. Our lineage teaches one person at a time in this way because he was teaching me to be able to be a practitioner. I read and that in your book, and isn't that a bit risky? I mean, what, what if something had happened to you? It's like that would break the lineage. The lineage is in charge of itself, its destiny. So you're and training some one person now? Swamiji is now training another person for his work in India. Okay. And he has launched me to be responsible for the work in America. So Makara, you've, mm -hmm. you've mentioned it a number of times. As I understand it from your book, it's the sort of the upper level of the sixth chakra, right? Yes. And it's a, it's a stable point, uh, having yes. reached which you're not going to drop back again. Um, exactly. So I want to go into this a little bit more with you, but uh, there are a lot of teachers, a lot of gurus who have sort of given gurus a bad name by seemingly being a very awake, enlightened person and then doing, you know, bad things or culturally considered things that are culturally considered to be bad or immoral or reprehensible in some way. And so would the great spiritual traditions. Yeah. So what do you make of all Cross that? Do, do you think that, that such people could have reached Makara and that you can still have moral irregularities that need to be worked out? Or do you think that they're probably not as enlightened as they and their followers might think they, they are or were? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of varieties of Kundalini experience. Mm -hmm. And with the deflected rising, a lot of the brain centers are activated automatically. Mm -hmm. And remember that these are unstable risings. Yeah. They don't even touch makara because makara is the top of sashumna. And those risings have to be diverted into sashumna for a person to get to makara. And in order to access the upper routes to bindu and parabindu, you have to bypass, go through, Makara point, but you can get a lot of brain center stimulation, a lot of siddhis, a lot of charisma, a lot of charisma without makara, and lower brow, which is just short of makara. There's a clairvoyance window that can open, so you can get a lot of siddhis in that way too, and that's a stable rising, and people are very bright, very insightful with that kind of rising. They've got something special. But there is the possibility for ego aggrandizement and temptation mm -hmm. at that level. And there can be siddhis with temptation. But also, even at Makara, you're not home free. No. And you still have ego aggrandizement and Absolutely. temptation at Makara? 
Yes. But you're not going to fall back from Makra. So you've got this stable state from which you can still be a schmuck. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Alas. Yeah. And, of course, the consequences are more dire. Yeah. A person at Makara, because they have this wonderful blessing, I think the divine expects more, one could say. The stakes are higher. The subtle body takes it harder if one misbehaves post-Makara. This is why, again, the yamas and the niyamas and the the four prerequisites of Vedanta must be lived. One cannot be unvirtuous. There is no cultural relativity. Well, it's okay because whatever, excuse. The world is an illusion or whatever. This has, for years, been a kind of a something I've pondered because I don't want to name names, but I had always sort of come to learn that or to understand that there is a correlation between higher states of consciousness and moral behavior, and that if you're really up there in terms of a high degree of enlightenment or awakening, then you know everything you do should be a spontaneous expression of life-supporting intention that you're not going to be doing anything which would harm or disillusion or hurt anyone. But then I came to see so many examples to the contrary that it really confused me and I've been thinking about this and discussing it with people ever since. Is there a state at which one is finally really, I guess you say yes, there is a final realization and perhaps at that point one is no longer susceptible to such As long as one is in the body, the senses are engaged. I think through practice of virtue Mm -hmm. and adamant yearning for liberation this lifetime, people form deep grooves of virtue Mm. and they can withstand temptations much more easily. But as long as one is embodied, as long as one has a mind, then there's always the possibility. There's the possibility. A lot of the Eastern teachers who came to the West and were brought up and trained in a very restrictive culture. They come to the West and, oh my goodness, the way Western ladies dress and present themselves blatantly as available. And I wouldn't just blame the ladies because these guys guys have some responsibility too. Oh, totally. I'm not just blaming, goodness, no. no. I'm not just blaming the ladies. But I'm saying that even though they were able to withstand perhaps temptation in their training time, they are transported to a whole nother environment. Right. And it is harder for them. Their strong habits of virtue fall prey to a different cultural setting. Yeah. Which is my explanation for why so many of them have fallen. I'm not blaming the ladies. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Could there be a legitimate scenario? in which some, let's say, teacher who comes from the East and has really is established in a very enlightened state and who grew up in an ashram setting and, you know, living monastically, but who really perhaps has, what do you call them, vasanas, kleshas, who has tendencies that never got worked out and who perhaps by dharma might have very well been a householder, could have been a householder, and yet because of spiritual zeal went for a monastic life and then they they're out there in the world interacting with young ladies and all kinds of people and obviously and they succumb to temptation but perhaps there's some kind of 
thing they actually need to experience that, that they bypassed w well, when the they were younger. Well, the in India is live the vows or remove the robe. That's a good way of putting it. And that's a little hard if you're a world-famous guru, you know, whoever has become accustomed to seeing in a robe. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're not able to live the vows, you're no longer a swami. Yeah, yeah. Go live the secular life mm -hmm. and do it as virtuously as you can, but don't pretend to be a priest if right. you're not living as a priest. And advocating or it to monk. others as well. Be true to the inner. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy. And thus, when asked the question, well, how far along are you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a lot farther to go. Yeah. I'm very grateful for what I have been able to experience, but I can say with all truth, there's a lot more to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And I am acutely aware of work that I have yet to do yeah. because it gets more refined and more difficult the farther along you get. I think that's a really good perspective and orientation, and it's a perennial theme in these interviews because I, my, although I don't know all the, the, de, the fine details of the potential milestones, I, I just have an, an intuitive conviction that the, the, the range of possible evolutionary advancement is vast and that, um, that even some of our most exemplary spiritual luminaries might not have yet have traversed that whole range. And it's, you know, there's that attitude, it's always good, Amma says always, it's good to always have the attitude of a beginner. Uh, and, and Absolutely. In, in Zen, they say, beginner's mind. And, you know, this sort of attitude, like, relative to what might be possible, I'm just starting out, <laughs> even though I've been at this for a lifetime. And, you know, there's karmic strata mm. as well. And it can look really nice at first, and you're emptying all that out. And then you hit a level in your karmic stuff that is like all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And it was unexpected, but there you are in the thick of it all mm. of a sudden. Yeah. And and it has to be dealt with. Huh. You don't know it's going to come, but there it is. Interesting. Now, we've talked about Makara, and, you, and you've alluded to stages above Makara and then Bindu and Parabindu, and that relates to what we've just been saying, I think, in terms of the, the range of possibilities. So... Can you, can you kind of itemize and delineate a little bit, uh, elaborate a little bit on what these various possibilities might be above Makara, which again we've defined as a kind of a, a stable platform that, that once reached can't be lost, but which is not the, the be-all and, and end-all. An opening. People who have no kundalini process at all, mm -hmm. we can say they live in the gross material, rational world, of waking state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. People who have kundalini process pre-makara live in dreaming state. Metaphorically, in, kind of? Metaphorically, it's not like they're not dreaming like, like you do at night. Right. But they're in between, it means sort of. the subtle body, mm -hmm. the energy system, and the mind are prominent for them. So it's the life of mind, it's the life of sensitivity, it's the life of, yeah, yeah, there's the external world, but what's really going on is more subtle than that. And they're aware of this subtlety. And 
it's vast and it's fascinating, it's intriguing. When you get to Makara, there's another shift, and that is to being conscious in deep sleep state, which is the state of concentration going to meditation, where you can catch the gap between thoughts and start to go beyond mind. It's so interesting Conscious. you should mention that. I just want to interrupt you briefly because that, that, that also is something that I brought up in many interviews. And there was recently a big discussion about it on Facebook that I was part of about consciousness or, or, or pure awareness during deep sleep as being a sort of a earmark of a certain degree of awakening. I'll let you proceed in a second, but perhaps you could elaborate on that and whether that is a sort of an absolute criterion of a certain degree of awakening or if one could be very awake and even beyond you know, the stage you're, you're referring to here and yet not routinely have awareness during sleep? You know, every individual is different and it doesn't necessarily mean that while I'm in bed in what a sleep researcher would say is deep sleep state, that I am always conscious. Mm -hmm. That happens and there is a carryover. That would be internal awareness of deep sleep. It can also happen while one is meditating. But then it also carries over into I am inactivity, as you would say. I'm externally engaged. And yet I am also conscious of the deep sleep state in a sort of presence mm. while I'm also aware of the dream time realm huh. and clearly engaged in waking state. That's interesting. The states, according to Mandukya Upanishad, uh -huh. in spiritual development, waking enters into dreaming, waking and dreaming enter into deep sleep, hmm. waking, dreaming, and deep sleep enter into Turiya, huh. beyond the koshas, the sheaths. How about this? Um, this? Let me tell you my experience and see if, how it fits into what you just said, which is that all the time, pretty much, I don't, have, I don't think I have awareness during sleep, although I do have a thing where I'll, I'll wake up uh, and, and I'll think, boy, you know, if I don't get to sleep, I'm going to be tired tomorrow. And then I'll realize that just seconds ago I was in, deep into a dream <laughs> and I just have this feeling that, I'm a, that mm -hmm. I was been, I've been awake for a long time, but actually I wasn't. But another thing is that most of the time, quite vividly or clearly, there's a sense of as if living in a cave of being while at the same time engaged in dynamic activity um, yeah. and feeling like I'm not doing anything, nothing is happening. It's, there's just this pure silence and yet there's all this wild stuff going on, you know, things that I'm doing around me, going through an airport, you know, dealing with this and that. How does that relate to what you just said? This is a mind trained to be one-pointed. You can find the still point with mind concentrating while you're carrying on various external activities. And you're not trying to find it. It's just the condition that it's, you're spontaneously in. Because the mind is trained. You have trained it to be one-pointed. Well, a lot of times in meditation, my, I feel like my mind is anything but one-pointed. I'm having all kinds of thoughts. I might be thinking some Hopping song around. that I listen to or something, mm -hmm. which you know, I'd, I'd rather just be totally absorbed, but the mind still has its you know, noise going on. 
yeah, my wife just handed me a note saying I'm talking about myself too much, but I'm trying to, I like bringing in certain experiences. This is I, what marriage is for, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a constant mirror. Yeah. Um, well, I'm just trying to gain clearer understanding of some of these experiences, you know, and tr place them in the context of what you're talking about. And maybe it will help other people who are listening to this who have a similar orientation. Everyone wants to self-assess. Yeah. It's not as easy as it seems. <laughs> so it's complicated. And sometimes one kind of rising because of the karmic material and the temperament of the person and all of that, it'll look like something else. So it's not as it's not like a personality type that you just go, Oh, the Myers Briggs, I'm an INFP, that's clear. <laughs> Okay, so I interrupted you. You were you were going through a progressive explanation. And I yeah, kind of, of the of yeah. the states. Please keep going. From waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and beyond. And stages above Makara as we go up. Yeah. So the transition from I've got some kind of initial rising, but I haven't reached Makara yet. Mm -hmm. You're living more in dream realm, mm -hmm. even while you're in activity. At Makara, this sacred shift that happens is that you are now able to access deep sleep state with awareness. And this is where real meditation happens. There's a difference between I practice this kind of meditation method and I am meditating. When you're meditating, the mind stays still. Doesn't waver. Right. Like a lamp but, that does not flicker in a windless place. Yes. Yeah. But when you're practicing a meditation method, your mind can still be dull and restless and mm -hmm. flitting all over the place. That's you're practicing it, but not, you're not. It's not you're not getting anything out of it. It's, it's, it's benefiting you, but you're not into the meditation. Is a experience. It's also defined as a method. So people say, "I meditate." Well, they practice a method. They may not actually be in the state of meditation when they do that method. So, mm -hmm. two different things. Yeah. But post makara you can meditate, mm. actually. And the cork is popped. Kundalini Shakti chooses an upper route. They vary. They each have their own particular characteristics. But they all, first big job is clear out the karmic bag of, of the major things. Mm. Then when the stages of lower samadhi, dualistic samadhi, start happening progressively, the more refined clearing out happens. When that is cleared out enough, then it's described as, as visarga, where shakti starts merging into Shiva, and the individual self merges into the universal self. The first experience of that is bindu, that point at the middle of the Sri Yantra, mm. beyond manifestation. It can be just a brief experience, but then it recurs and one goes back, one commutes to Bindu again and again and again. And then there's a f said to be what's called a four-inch gap between the individual self and the universal self. So the expansion of awareness increasingly fills this four-inch gap until the individual self and the universal self are one, and that is 
Parabindu or Turiya. When that is really well established, that is Turiyatita, beyond Turiya, and that is a Jiva Mukta, who is in all four states, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and beyond in Turiya, and has brought Turiya back out into the waking state so that they are simultaneously in all four states 24-7. Let me throw a question here. Liberated in the body. My understanding of Turiyatita was always that it's not that you, well, I, I'm, I'm not arguing with you, I'm just saying this is juxtaposing the, what I was, had always understood with what you just said, is that it's not that you're in all four states simultaneously, but you're always in Turiya, fourth state, pure consciousness, w whether you're in waking, dreaming, or sleeping. So the, those three will cycle along, but, un, but there's a continuum of pure consciousness as they cycle. The continuum of pure consciousness really starts at Bindu, at Turiya. And in Turiya Tita, there, there is some fluctuation. Now I'm more in dreaming. Now I'm more in waking. Yeah. But they don't go away. Dreaming and waking. In Turiya Tita, the other three states don't go away. Huh. It's a matter of now I appear to be in waking. Now I appear to be in dreaming. Now I appear to be in deep sleep. Of course, Turiya permeates all of them. Yeah. From the outside looking at the Jivan Mukta, they appear to be waking, dreaming, sleeping, but... But they're really in all three. They're all three, but it's a matter of degree how much... Obviously, when they're eating and walking, there's more waking activity going on. But they're also aware of things from the celestial level mm -hmm. and from the subtle level. Well, I was just going to say, it doesn't sound very desirable to be in all three. I mean, why would you want to be in sleep and dream while you're in waking? But no, no, what, what you just said with the I'm celestial... I'm using these words differently. Yeah, celestial, and, and that clarifies it. What you just said, yes. that they're aware of the celestial and the subtle. Think of it as material, subtle, causal or celestial, and beyond. There you go. Now it makes sense. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it's like I'm snoring while I'm in, eating breakfast or something. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what you're saying is that one is aware of the subtle realms while riding the subway or something. You might see mm -hmm. celestial beings on the subway, or, and you're aware, you're aware of the causal while you're in the middle of the regular worldly activities, right? Yes. That's what you're saying? Yes, okay. yes. Okay, that makes more sense. And that does come along for many people. Uh, that, you know, people I've interviewed, for instance, who just routinely see angels all around us all the time and things like that. They have that celestial perception. Or subtle perception. It's a judgment call. Is this a not embodied entity, a subtle realm entity, or a celestial realm entity? Yeah. And there are many Sometimes, gradations of subtle, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And some of those entities might not, you, want, you might not want to hang out with. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which is why it's tricky to travel around the subtle too much, because there's yeah. still the pairs of opposites. There's good guys and bad guys, just yeah. as there are in the material plane. Okay. All right. I think maybe we're not quite finished, but so you're talking about these gradations and it seems like there are many of them and eventually we get up to the Bindu point and or, or, yeah, and then there's the Parabindu. How, have we finished or have we? is there yet more to explain? Jivan Mukta, <laughs> liberated while still in the body, mm -hmm. that is the final thing. The, the ultimate. But there's also a person who is at Churya and 
not fully liberated on an everyday basis, but at the time of death enters one into the experience of one with the one. And if they leave the body in that experience, then they are liberated and they don't have to be reborn. Now, you referred to celestial masters a little while ago, and you, I think you said you received some instruction from a celestial master. Are celestial masters fairly common on the celestial level? And are most, a lot of enlightened people, like I've heard a lot of stories of people getting guidance from Ramana Maharshi. Could he have possibly become a celestial master and many other masters become that? And they're continuing to work from that level and they won't take re physical human rebirth again, but they're going to hang around and help us out? I think so. I think that's sort of the Vedic version of the Bodhisattva, mm -hmm. that there are great adepts and certainly Christian saints, certainly Jesus, I will be with you always, mm, yeah. even to the end of the world, mm -hmm. for the purpose of spiritual guidance and blessing and assistance. The adepts and great ones on the celestial and beyond are part of their dharma, some of them, is to preserve and protect and make available the great spiritual teachings of the world so that they never disappear and mm. are available when they are needed. Mm. And that there are human beings who are advanced enough that they can access what the great celestial ones protect and preserve so that there is a, a continuity of spiritual teachings, that they are not lost. They may sometimes go into repose, but when needed, they come forward again for the benefit of humanity. And that the whole purpose of incarnated into a human body is liberation. So we need those teachings and they don't go away. And the more we want them sincerely, the more they come to us. And the more we seek assistance, the more it comes to us. This is one of the great boons of, of devotion to a great saint or sage and pilgrimage, that if we go to the holy places where the divine has been present or where a great saint or sage has lived in a state of liberation or where the faithful and devoted have gone to worship century after century after century. The Celts call them the thin places. Mm, nice phrase. When we go to these thin places, the celestial blessings and the presence of the holy ones and divine assistance and inner spiritual education, it's more readily available for our spiritual well-being. That's a beautiful explanation. I love that phrase, thin places, it, you know, it, it implies permeability there. Whereas, if, you know, if you hang out in some kind of a strip joint or a bar or something, pretty thick place. Very <laughs> heavy, low, tomasic vibe, and a lot of sex-addicted astrals wanting you to misbehave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Don't go there. And, of course, there are Vedic injunctions, and I'm sure in other traditions as well, to hang out in the company of... You know, spiritual Sages. people. If you're, if you're interested in spirituality, you better hang out with spiritual people. It's going to be conducive to it. That would also explain why you can kind of make a, a thin place by ha having a spiritual gathering of some sort of the right satsang. type. Right, yeah, satsang with the right types of people. It just in it makes that opening more... Yeah. Where, where you really 
bring your sattvic vibes mm -hmm. and you get into a meditative state yeah. and you talk about spiritual topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yes. it kind of mutually reinforces. It makes a nice vibe it does, in yeah. the place. Yeah. And then you keep it purified with incense and candles and sacred images and you don't do lower vibe stuff right. in that Which particular can... place. So that's why it's nice to have a sadhana place in your home. Yeah, yeah. I know that, you know, going to see Amma sometimes, she has uh, programs in hockey rinks and, you know, places that are, <laughs> generally it's public places that have been used for all kinds of things, but after a couple of days, the whole place has been transformed. Oh, absolutely. She would sanctify it. Yeah. Very consciously sanctify it. She generates the Shakti to fill that place. And then the love and upliftment right. of the devotees also fills the place. So it's just one big shakti generator well we got about three pages of questions here which none of which i've <laughs> asked you over the course of two hours and 47 minutes or oh something my goodness. <laughs> but um i want to just throw in a couple of them which and one question which came in from a listener do lower life forms animals some people would would uh, resent my calling them lower but do they have kundalinis and can they get enlightened or is that something that's reserved only for human nervous systems you know, I know Ramana had a cow. That supposedly got enlightened. It was supposedly enlightened. <laughs> but according to what I know of the, of the Vedic perspective, mm -hmm. domestic animals especially and beloved pets mm -hmm. are either like on their way to a or on their way from. back from a human incarnation. Mm -hmm. And that a human incarnation is sought and that you kind of go up the cascade yeah, of yeah. life forms until you have a human incarnation and that human beings have the full subtle body system that is required for liberation all of the chakras yeah all of the nadis whereas other mammals may not have all of the chakras or nadis that are necessary to support kundalini shakti so they all have purushas souls according to samkhya yeah. yes but they're Kundalini Shaktis don't, if we could use that language, don't have the subtle body equipment right. for the liberation project. Nor do their gross nervous systems. I mean, a crocodile has a reptilian brain. It doesn't have a, a prefrontal cortex and all that stuff, mm -hmm. which presumably is necessary for the kind of awakening we're talking about. Well, according to neurotheology, yes. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting phrase, neurotheology. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> Uh, let me just read this one that came in because somebody took the trouble of sending it in. Linda from Boulder, Colorado asks, how can one tell if physical conditions that arise are related to Kundalini Shakti? I had my initial Kundalini awakening about 30 years ago and have wondered since then if certain body experiences such as chronic pressure in the back of my head are related to spiritual blockage or opening. I have a strong spiritual practice, including mantra chanting. Is there anything else you would recommend or is it so individual that I would need to come see you? Also, thank you for your Kundalini Vidya book. It's fascinating. Oh, thank you. Um, it's a good question because it's a discernment around, and I get this question a lot, is this physical or is this process? Someone who has Kundalini process lives in a body and has a subtle body along with Kundalini that is trying to finish the liberation project. So... It's sometimes a hard judgment call, mm -hmm. but 
if one thinks this might be a physical difficulty, go check it out with a regular MD if the test is not invasive. Like when I got the sonogram for my spinning heart, <laughs> I was reassured there is nothing wrong with my actual physical heart. Ergo, it's the values, it's process. Yeah. And pressure in the back of the head can often happen with Kundalini process that is trying to progress upward. Pressure in the head in various places is a not uncommon sign or side effect of Kundalini process. Okay. So in Linda's case, do you think that answered her question or would, she, would you really need to see her in person to figure out exactly what you she's know, going we through? We always work with individuals. You just can't say exactly what's going on without having the three histories and speaking with the individual. Yeah. The three histories the assessment really is the first step in what we do, other than education through like this interview or book. the book Kundalini yeah. Vidya. And, yeah. and uh, do you always do that in person in Tennessee or do you sometimes consult people over Skype or something? No, we do it, we do it by phone. They mail phone. in their three histories once they've written them and send in a photograph and mm -hmm. such. And then I give the assessment over phone. Okay, yeah. but then to actually get more practical instruction do they have to come to Tennessee or you can do the whole they thing do. over the yeah. No, we work in person with individuals. So when I do a retreat, I work with usually two to five people. You like to keep them small like that. Keep it small. Keep yeah. it small. I used to work with eight people. That's when Swamiji was here, but that's too many. Too much for me these days. I'm trying to make my own life a little gentler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how long do these people. retreats last? Two weeks. Two weeks long. Just short of two weeks. And how much do they cost? Um, People, if they're interested, they can call. They can call the yeah. office. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, it, we're small, and it's not like 300 people are coming for a weekend. How often and do you do these retreats? One of the filters that we have, mm -hmm. because we want people who are stable in their life situation, mm -hmm. stable enough health-wise, stable enough emotionally, psychologically, and really spiritually motivated. The fact that we require that you write your three histories, you're basically sending in your story to a stranger, almost, and the fact that it costs a few thousand dollars to do this retreat mm -hmm. means that you have the financial stability to have a spiritual savings account yeah. that you use for your spiritual life mm -hmm. and that it's not going to break the bank to go on a retreat yeah and that you return to a stable life situation that you have the time for spiritual practice mm -hmm. and the motivation spiritually to continue doing spiritual practice and living a stable virtuous life yeah it's not for everybody we're selective what percentage of people do you accept out of all those who apply? Well, there is synchronicity at play, and I believe the divine helps people find us. We've been word of mouth. We're now word of Skype. Most of the people who have come to us um, have turned out to be qualified. Yeah. If they're not, I simply ask them to wait, that they're not ready yet. And there are clearly some things that most people can do to make their lives 
more stable and their prana systems more vital. And it requires some choices on their part. If people are living in a chaos, that's not a setting for spiritual life. They have to tone down the chaos as best they can. Great. Alrighty. Well, three pages of questions here that I'm not going to have time to ask. All kinds of stuff. There's so much we can talk about. Your book is a, is a goldmine of, of interesting information. But we'll have to leave it at that for now because we've been going on pretty long. Obviously, as, as always, I'll be creating a page on batgap.com with a little bit about you and with link, links to your website and, and where they can get your book and stuff. And if people are interested in, and they can always find out more, contact you directly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll definitely be interested in doing a second interview with you at some point. Maybe not right away, maybe a year from now or something. Mm-hmm. Where we've, people have had a chance to digest all this. And, and by then, the second book will be out. Great. Yeah, that might be a good time to do it. I've really enjoyed this as I knew I would, and uh, you're a delight to speak with, and I, I respect your your whole path, your whole life, and what you've done with it, and what you're what you're doing with it. <laughs> it's great. Thank uh, you. Yeah, really valuable service for the world. Thanks and, to the lineage of yeah. Kundalini Vidya and and the blessings of Swamiji, and that he taught me so carefully and diligently. Yeah. And even the fact that I, you've dealt with a relatively small number of people, I don't think is significant because, you know, you have a function that serves people at a certain stage of their evolution and such people are not too common. And, That's right. Yeah. And so you're kind of like a finishing school or something that... Uh, That's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not a beginner's way. Right. It's not for the masses or whatever. Not but, for the masses. That's better put. Yeah. It's yes, not yeah. for the masses. But, but it's an essential tool, I think, in, this, in the spiritual marketplace that you know, will be great for certain people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let me just make some general re- concluding remarks. Um, as you all know by this time, you know who I've been speaking to and what I've been speaking about. But let me just speak about Buddha at the gas pump in general for a second. Um, it, it's a, if, if you're new to this show, it's um, ongoing series, once a week in general. Go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and explore the menus, and you'll see all the about all the past and future ones. Apologies to those who wanted to tune in for the live feed today. It didn't work. We'll get it fixed. Should Most of the interviews I do are live streamed, and it's, it's nice to do that if you can, because you can send in questions as we go along. There's an email you know, sign-up thing if you want to be notified by email each time I post a new interview. There's a podcast which still works for some people and uh, there's a problem that Apple, that iTunes has that they're aware of that they're trying to fix and I'm, I eventually will get the podcast totally fixed and there's a place to sign up for it on the site. There's the donation button which I mentioned in the beginning which enables us to do this whole thing, uh, those who support it. I think that's just about it. There's some other things, explore the menus. So thanks for listening or watching. Thank you again, Joan. Thank you, Rick. It's been great fun talking to you. Hope to meet you again in person one of these days. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Namaste.